Let me pray for us and we'll get started. Father, I thank you again that we can gather today. We thank you for uh, the, the love that you've shown to us, especially through your son, Jesus Christ, uh, the grace that we have because of him, uh, that we can enter into your love, uh, into your presence. And I thank you, Lord, that we can study this morning uh, your word and, and understand better together uh, how uh, we should live our lives according to this grace. Uh, according to your uh, good providence to us and according to uh, your great love, I pray that we would see more of Christ today. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So where have we been? Very quickly. Last week we started introducing the idea of spiritual formation uh, according to the spiritual disciplines. And what we said was throughout this class, throughout this semester, we've been trying to de-emphasize the role of, uh, of action or activity uh, as a way to show how our, I, our activity is going to be rooted in our identity. And so for the first two-thirds or more of this, this uh, study, we've been looking at our identity in Christ. And I revisited that last week. And, um, and then we started introducing the idea of the spiritual disciplines and how to make use of the spiritual disciplines. Uh, and so if you have your sheet from last week, uh, I kind of very quickly went through the idea of the spiritual disciplines as the means of grace that God has given to his people in order for us to grow more and more in Jesus Christ. And so the means of grace, I don't want to give uh, short change to the Westminster Shorter Catechism. I did that last week. I don't want to do that because it's so important for us to understand and, and the dedication that these men had to putting together this document. I think it's very helpful. Uh, so what are the means of grace? And this is Shorter Catechism 88. The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacrament, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. Okay. So the means of grace God has given to us that Christ uses to communicate the benefits of his redemption to us. And so um, these are the things primarily that Christ uses to grow us in his grace, okay? Um, and they are ordinary things, very, very ordinary things. Um, and we see here in, in, uh, that it's especially in the preaching of the word, the sacraments and prayer, the spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Um, there's, uh, there's something that happens with preachers. Um, you know, Nathan was actually talking about this last week where studies have been done on like, on the uh, endorphins and things that, that are released in, in, in preachers whenever they preach. And you kind of get this high whenever you preach, whenever you, you, you um, yeah, you're preaching the word Sunday morning, Sunday evening, things are going so well. And then Monday, a lot of times, most, most preachers and pastors are still feeling really good as they're going through it. And then on Tuesday, there's this crash that comes. And so one of the things they say is don't have any meetings or anything like that on Tuesday. Well, we have staff meeting on Tuesday. So you can imagine how joyful those times are. Um, but that's not the point. The point that I'm making is that it's an, it's an incredible um, 
thing where you can preach and think you preached the best sermon in the world. No one has ever preached a better sermon. People are leaving. As they're leaving, they're telling you it's an incredible sermon. You did a great job. But if you were to come back and ask them what you preached on the next day, they would have forgotten about it. Does that mean the sermon wasn't good? No. Does that mean the Spirit didn't use the sermon? No. Cumulatively, over time, amazingly, the Spirit uses the means of grace to grow us more and more in Christ, even if we don't know how that's happening. Uh, And that's why, um, you know, it's probably not a great idea to ask somebody what I preached on, you know, last week, this week. But if you look at somebody's life after 10 years of sitting under the, the faithful and consistent preaching of the Word, you see that people have grown more and more in their maturity uh, and, and that's what we're talking about here, incremental change that happens, not in great big bursts, but by availing ourselves of the means of grace, especially under the preaching of the words we do, or the preaching of the word, we do grow more and more in Christ. Um, all right, so how are they made effectual? This is, again, Westminster Shorter Catechism 88. The sacraments become effectual means of salvation. So how are they, how are they effective Uh, not from any virtue in them, so not in those things themselves, or uh, in any that administers them. So we're not talking about uh, really anything in the the preacher. You could have the finest preacher in the world, but if the Spirit isn't at work, it's not going to be effectual. Uh, But only by the blessing of Christ and the working of His Spirit in them by faith that received them. So in order for uh, these things to be effectual, the Spirit has to be at work uh, in the faith of those that are hearing and receiving these means of grace. Um, All right. Any questions or comments about that? Anybody need a copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith? I'm happy to give you one. Uh, Just ask me afterwards. Um, All right. So as we talk about this, there are three primary ways that... um, Well, let me go back. There are two primary ways that I think in our culture, traditionally, we tend to approach understanding the means of grace. Okay, two primary ways. So if you have your sheet, uh, there's one that says at the very top, um, uh, the traditional ways we tend to approach spiritual disciplines. You have that? Um, And up there you have two two boxes. Um, We tend to think that we will, the best way to approach these spiritual disciplines is either as an individual as an individual or communally. So we either approach them individually or communally, uh, which means these are just kind of the primary ways that we're thinking about uh, coming to, uh, even coming to something like a worship service. Um, many of us, when we approach, uh, uh, you know, the worship service, we're coming and thinking, I'm coming to get what I can get out of this. I'm going to grow in this. And you're not really even considering those that are, uh, the others that are coming and participating in the worship service as well. And so we, are tend, we tend to think about these things individually. Or we tend to think about them only communally, where you're saying, I'm going to a worship service, but I'm going with all of these other people. And your focus is is on everyone that's there together uh, and partaking of these things together. 
Now from there, I think there are three ways, three primary ways that you can understand each of these things. And I want to go over, um, I'm going to go over each of these kind of individually like this. All right, so the first way we tend to think about these things is in what's called pietism. Pietism. You get a couple different words from, from this. You can break it down. Piety is, is kind of the root word there. What's the word piety mean? Piety. A pious person would be somebody that we would consider holy, right? So piety, pious. Um, let me say this at the outset. I'm going to be attributing some negative things to these as I do this. And I, I don't want you to think that I think that there's anything negative about any of these things necessarily in themselves. Um, but as we talk about pietism, um, I do want you to connect the idea of piety to it and being pious to it because um, if we're not thinking rightly about piety or our growth in Christ, um, then it can have some negative consequences to it. All right, so um, piety just at a, at a base level means personal holiness, personal holiness. And oftentimes we will approach the means of grace, worship, life in Christ from a purely pietistic standpoint. And in this, on, at, at, underneath this first circle, you have there a couple of things, uh, or a box where I want you to fill a couple of things in. Pietism, pietism primarily is focused on the personal. It's focused on the personal. All right, so my relationship with Christ. All right, and in pietism, what you'll find is that there is a high regard for personal Bible study or quiet time, or personal prayer. There's even a, a, a push for things like fasting um, and service. Uh, so this looks, in, in more than likely, if you grew up in an evangelical church, a lot of times evangelical churches will promote pietism uh, as the primary means of approaching Christ or growing in Christ. And so it's a focus on the personal so that um, you might have been raised with this intense pressure to have a quiet time every single morning. All right? If you're not in the Word every single morning by yourself with no distractions, then you aren't living your life as Christ intended. Anybody grow up in that kind of... <laughs> Right, some of us did. Some of us did, um, and so there's that. And then, and then it's the idea that you know my prayer time is just me and Jesus, and uh, what I'm doing in my prayer time is uh, is more important than anything that's happening communally. Um, in this, the goal is a fantastic goal, and the goal the goal ultimately is an internal striving for holiness. There's this internal striving for holiness. The focus isn't necessarily on the things that are happening out there. It's what's happening in here as I'm reading the scriptures, as I'm praying, 
as I'm interacting with the, the means of grace that God has given, how am I growing? How am I, uh, how am I doing kind of individually and personally? What tends to happen in this, uh, in this approach is there tends to be this push toward and a desire for uh, motivation or, or a motivation by emotional experience, okay? In order, because what happens is you have to get excited about doing things like quiet time. How are you going to get more excited about your personal private meeting with Jesus if you're not energized to it? So what is going to be the thing that energizes you to it? Oftentimes in this pietism, there is an emotional appeal uh, to get you to want to do those things more. And so in these circles, in, in, um, oftentimes in these circles, what you'll find is... Uh, a heavy reliance upon, um, like, a, a lot of emotion. Um, you'll see this in, like, youth camps especially, um, but not just youth camps, in a lot of churches, there's a lot of an emotional appeal um, trying to make you excited about, in some way, connecting with Jesus in this personal way. Um, and oftentimes in this, it sees the corporate life, and I'll just say this, life in church as a good thing, but it's not the primary thing. And it's what's happening inside of you more than what's happening inside of the church. You see that? All right. And again, this is primarily found, this approach is primarily found in evangelical churches and in evangelical circles. And let me just say this, there's nothing wrong with being motivated by an intense desire, an emotional desire to know Jesus better. There's nothing wrong with desiring to do your own personal quiet time and to, to, to read your Bible and to pray and to fast and do those things. Those are wonderful things. Emotions are good. Um, we like emotions, we don't like showing emotion, but we do like emotion, okay? Um, but oftentimes, this can be kind of a narrowing of our focus. It's just kind of my own personal growth without regard to the other people that are out there. My coming to church is really about me and not about the church and not about Christ, okay? Are y'all tracking with this? Pietism. Um, it's, there's, a, there's some fascinating studies that, are, that, are, that have been done. Um, there is a movement called, called uh, Pietism that was a movement in the seventh, late 17th, early 18th century in Lutheran and Reformed circles um, in Germany, in Scandinavia, um, in the Scandinavian countries, anywhere where basically Lutheranism kind of went. Uh, Pietism as a movement was, was directed toward a feeling of um, kind of this bare orthodoxy that was being promoted and pushed, and, and an orthodoxy that, that really wasn't connecting with people on an emotional level so that everyone just kind of considered themselves to be Christians, but there was no personal devotion that went along with it. 
Um, and so there was a movement within Lutheran and Reformed circles, again, late 17th, early 18th century, that was a pull or a push toward deep emotional responses to Jesus Christ. Um, again, good things because they saw this bare, bland orthodoxy in, in national churches that were, you know, they would gather for Sunday morning, they would go through the liturgies, they weren't really excited about Jesus, they were all Christians, this is pretty much it, this is the best we get. And within that, they saw their children being raised with, um, with just this lack of desire for Christ or lack of wanting to be involved in the church. And so they said, what do we need to do is, again, connect people to Jesus in more emotional ways. And through that pietism, um, a lot of pietistic pastors and preachers came out, and there was this big movement. And pietism always starts off with this great, intense, like, draw toward Christ. But then ultimately what happens is almost everyone that comes up in, piet in pietistic families or pietistic circles, or at least this is the history in those Lutheran settings, is that they almost all end up rejecting Christianity. Because what's being promoted more than anything at the end of the day is your emotions and not the person and work of Jesus Christ. The greatest example of this is somebody named Immanuel Kant, who was a philosopher who, we're in the mess we're in today because of Immanuel Kant. His father was a pietistic Lutheran pastor. And so what, uh, in all of this kind of pietism that was this push toward the individual and the personal, um, what, what Kant ultimately gathered from that was it doesn't matter about the objective truth of Christianity, none of that ultimately matters. What only matters is how I'm living my life today and what I'm doing. And so Kant essentially borrowed the morality of Christianity without reference to who Christ was and uh, sent us on this trajectory that we're on today. And so, um, so pietism is a... Um, it can be a good thing, it's not always bad, but this intense focus on the personal can go awry. And that's kind of the point that I want you to see. Yes? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hold on. Hold on, I got, hold on, yes, and no, but yes, and no. All right, so um, you're tracking with me, good, good. Um, all right, so that's pietism. Any other comments about pietism? Any other questions? Now, if you're sitting here and you're saying, wait a second, Kelly has just attacked everything that I know and love about Christianity. You've heard me wrong. Go back to the beginning, go listen to it again. This is a good thing. This pietism can be good, but what I'm saying is there's maybe a better way of looking at this. All right? Yes? I mean, like, bring it into like today, like presently. Like, would it be fair, and, and I'm asking you this question, that like culturally in the church was this real popular 80s, 90s, you know, and, and now you're seeing all these like the deconstructionism is really popular. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I, I think so. Um, and that's why I want to offer something better, right? I, I want to say, you know, that it's, because growing up in that, um, I think it's a good thing that I was encouraged to do my own personal private study. Um, but for a lot of people, um, it, it, it ended up being such an intense um, shaming kind of thing. And a lot of times shame comes out of this, where if you're not living up to this ideal of what a Christian is, then you're not really a Christian, and there's something defective or wrong with you, okay? Um, I would argue, though, that it's not just something that we're seeing right now. I'm saying this is, we're always in kind of these cycles, okay? Um, and especially, a lot of times, individually, some of you have probably had more pietistic moments in your life, um, and, and, and maybe that's what I want you to do is, is connect to each one of these things as we're going through it to say, what if, how do we get out of the loop of going through each of these things as we talk about them? Because I think, yes, we're in this. Yes, we're seeing the, the, um, we're seeing the effect of, of pietism in our culture, in evangelicalism. But I think these are cycles that we're always going through. So again, this is the treadmill mentality. Like, how do we get off of this treadmill? How, for our kids' sake, are we going to get them off of, our, off of this treadmill? All right. Any other comments or questions? All right. The next one I want to look at is over here. Um, and this one is sacramentalism. Sacramentalism. Root here, obviously, sacrament. Um, in sacramentalism, in this kind of setting, you're much more focused on the corporate life of the body of believers, all right? Um, so that your growth in Christ is much more connected to your involvement with the church because the church is the place where you have to have the sacraments, the church is the place where you have to go in order to get the Jesus that you need. And so in, um, the, I, and I mean that in sacramental settings, I mean that literally because in the Catholic church, they have the host in the Eucharist where they actually believe it becomes the body and the blood of Jesus. The only way that you get the body and the blood of Jesus is in that setting. You do not get it any other way unless, unless a priest is the one that is breaking it, that is saying the prayer in the exact right way, and, and it becomes, it transubstantiates the bread and the wine become the body and the blood of Jesus. And so in this, the only way for you to grow in Christ is for you to have a priest give that to you. The only place that happens is within the church. And so it is much more focused on the corporate life of the church. Um, sacramentalism, uh, there is in this, there tends to be a de-emphasis on personal faith, a de-emphasis on personal prayer and Bible reading. Okay? Um, this is, this is largely the culture that we're living in. I don't know if you have um, Catholic friends, neighbors, family members. And 
when you talk about things like what the pastor preached on, and you, 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 know, you maybe want to have that kind of conversation whenever you're approaching them, they are not understanding or tracking with you because their approach is completely different. They're not going to church to hear and sit under the word. They're going to get what they need from the priest. And as long as they get it, they're pretty much okay. And that means they're growing in Christ the way that they need to. And they have to come back again next week and participate in these things weekly, monthly, yearly, and over a lifetime in order to grow and be secure in Christ. Okay? Um, Again, this is found in Roman Catholic or in Orthodox settings. The Orthodox Church is growing in many ways. And oftentimes what happens is, in our circles especially, you have people who are raised in pietistic settings. And after they kind of, they understand and they look around and they say, you know, oftentimes this is the way that it happens. You know, I watched my parents promote and push pietism. They don't wouldn't say use these terms, but this personal relationship with Christ. But in their lives, it didn't seem to work for them. And so I need something that's bigger than them, bigger than something personal. And so a lot of times people in these settings are driven toward sacramentalism because it feels so real. And it feels substantial. Meaning they get to hold and taste and touch Jesus. And so for that reason, it feels like something more objective and more real. Whereas here is focused on the subjective, here is focused much more on the objective. Or at least that's what's being promoted or, or a lot of times being, being presented. All right. Um, is that... Some of you were raised in this setting. I wasn't. I want to give fair treatment to it. Um, does that sound fair? Okay. Um, so, and then what's interesting... Yes, go ahead. Well, I mean, for younger people today, like, because there's been a massive shift in young people from pietism to sacramentalism, and I think the theologians and the, and the sociologists who study would say that pietism is all very imminent, like it's me and mm. my experience in it, and sacramentalism has a lot of transcendence mm-hmm. in the, symbols and, you know, what all the things mean, even the iconic, uh, the iconoclasm of it all. Yeah. And there's a real draw to that. It's much more spiritually kind of big, and I'm part of this bigger worldwide church. And, yeah. Uh, and it's, like, that's the zeitgeist for young people is, uh, you know, it's not just my one-on-one relationship with God. This is other thing. And um, so it's very attractive. Yeah, very attractive. Um, yeah. The bigness thing is, yeah, that's huge. I have a, a dear friend um, who um, ended up, who left the Presbyterian, left the Methodist Church to become Presbyterian, who ultimately went uh, from the Presbyterian Church to the Catholic Church. And at the end of the day, the reason why he did that was because he wanted something bigger. He just wanted something. He didn't feel like there was enough, and he wanted something even more, right? Um, and so he's... In, in the Catholic Church, um, and he's found everything that he's been looking for, right? No, he hasn't. Three years in, and he's going, wait a second, this is it? All right, yeah, this is it, because ultimately he's looking for something 
that um, even in this objective sacramentalism, they can't offer, they can't give. That's a lot of times what's being promoted, um, but it does offer you something that feels so much bigger. But you see, at the end of the day, it's still, uh, oftentimes, it's, it's based on that feeling. What am I getting from this? And even though you're participating in this something that is communal and bigger, it's still ultimately, am I getting enough personally, individually? All right. Any other comments or questions? So, uh, yeah, what Brent said was, it's, it's provoking to us, thought-provoking. It should be because, I mean, one of the big questions I have is, you know, for my children, how am I going to raise my children in such a way that they see the glory of Jesus Christ and they want more and more and more of Jesus? Um, and, yeah, and so I ask that question a lot. And one of the things that I say is, well, I can't give them myself. I can't give them me. I can't give them, I can't even give them the church because look at you people. I mean, come on. No, I mean, but who, I, I have to give them Jesus. I have to give them who Jesus actually is. And Jesus has to be the one that, that ultimately captivates them. And that's kind of where I'm driving the train is how do we get there, right? How do we do that? All right, any other questions or comments? All right. The third one here. Every time I do this, Woody comes up and he says, grace-based is over here, spiritual formation is over here. That's not, no, this is the line, I'm sorry, this is just the way the board is made. This is all one board, all together, okay. The third one here is what I'll say and call the contemplative. Contemplative. All right. This gets into what Zach was just talking about. In the contemplative sphere, in this kind of approach to the spiritual disciplines, uh, the contemplative is not just focused on the private, or not just focused on the personal, but it's actually focused on the private. In the contemplative sphere, what we see is people who have said, it's not just a personal thing, it's actually a private thing. Um, Here's what I mean by that. That in the contemplative approach, there is a quiet, reflective being before God. So it's just me sitting quietly and reflectively before God. And so in this contemplative sphere, I'm going to say something that probably sounds pretty good because we say it all the time, but that they would see that all of life is part of worship. That you're not doing worship whenever you're... um, just doing it on your own in private study. You're not doing worship whenever you're gathering together with, with God's people, but all of life is worship. And so in this approach, all of life needs to be a quiet reflection upon, uh, upon God or a, or a quiet reflection being with God. Um, and in this contemplative sphere, it's attempting to develop practices that can be sustained over a lifetime. So private practices that are sustained over a lifetime. And how does this take place? Oftentimes in this sphere, in this approach, it looks like having to go away by yourself, get away from all of the distractions of the world, and sitting quietly with just you and God 
um, and, and living your life in that way. And that's where the asceticism or the monastic movement largely comes from. Because in monasticism or in the uh, ascetic movement, oftentimes you have people that are in sacramental spaces and using sacramental approaches that are saying, this isn't enough, and what I have to do is retreat even more than the pietists do, get out of kind of this corporate setting altogether, and then go and just let it just be me and Jesus. Which is why oftentimes you'll find this even in evangelical circles as well, where people will say things like, it's really just me and Jesus. And they're not thinking through at all what it looks like to live corporately. Oftentimes, you'll see people who were raised in the church. I, I think I find this oftentimes uh, as part of an expression. It sounds so holy and so good when people will say, you know, I get more out of uh, sitting on, in a deer stand on a Sunday morning than I do going to church, right? Um, I think oftentimes, even though they don't know it, that is this idea that I get more being by myself away from all of the trappings of the world, away from the trappings of what happens within corporate worship. And then it's just me and Jesus and my gun, and I get to shoot a thing, right? And that's really spiritual and good. <laughs> so, um, and so oftentimes what happens is I think in pietism, pietism le leads to this, sacramentalism leads to this, and then you also see both pietism and sacramentalism leading to these things. Um, what's interesting is that, that the individual is kind of the focus here in the private, but in monastic settings, what they've realized is there are just some things that they have to have other people around for. So oftentimes in monastic settings, they'll take vows of silence where they have to be around other people, but they're not allowed to talk to other people because they're supposed to be talking to God the entire time that they're around people. But you need other people to help you make food and so you have to have these basic things that you're doing. And so even in communal settings, it kind of lends itself to this contemplative idea. Um, yeah, so oftentimes these are the ways that we approach. Anything, any other comments about that? Any other ideas? Yes. I think so. I don't know that much about them. Brendan Manning? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think yeah. I think that's kind of more of the push because what's interesting is this. You know, I, I've kind of identified this as primarily Catholic and Orthodox, but you'll find Pietistic types within the the Catholic Church that are calling for more Pietism, even in that. Because, and and like I said, the Lutheran Lutheran Pietism, that actual historical movement sprung out of this idea that there was just this bare orthodoxy that was going on out of this idea that, that you know, there wasn't anything exciting or good happening within the, the, the church. And so they reverted to a pietism to kind of get some of that excitement. Um, and so, yes, I think, yeah, Brendan Manning is probably a good example of it. And Brendan Manning says some absolutely wonderful things. And that's what I'm trying to get, the point I, I want to get across to you is, I think we need all three of these things if we're going, going to appropriately uh, approach Jesus. Now, I'm not saying we need to believe in transubstantiation in order to appropriately approach Jesus, but I, 
want us to appreciate the sacraments as means of grace that God has given to us so that we can be nourished in Christ. When we take the sacrament monthly here, or whenever we, we are watching a, a, a child be baptized or, or an adult be baptized, those things are meant to be nourishing to us by God. They're not meant to be bare signs that are given to us to just so that we memorialize what Jesus did. Jesus actually promised nourishment from those things. In what way are we nourished by them? Or is it just something that we do monthly because that's what we're supposed to do? Okay, that's kind of... I'm, I'm asking how are we being nourished by those things? And I want you to think about our involvement with the sacraments. The sacraments are means of grace. Are we really growing in Christ because of the sacraments? I think it's easier for us to say we're growing in Christ because of the word preached. Um, it's easier for us to connect those things in this church, in this context. But the sacraments as well, prayer as well, fellowship as well. Do you know what you need in order to have fellowship? You need other people. Just very basically, you have to have other people. And so there's not so much a, a, a focus on the personal or the private um, in order to grow in Christ through fellowship, you have to understand your role and your responsibility within the community. All right? There's not a call to just you and Jesus in that. Um, and then church discipline also requires a community. And that's what I want you to see, that we need something that is both individual and communal. Something that's individual and communal. Something that includes the elements, the appropriate elements of pietism and sacramentalism and pietism, or, or pietism, sacramentalism, and the contemplative. Where do we find these things? Where do we find the individual within the communal and personal and private and communal or sacramental or community involvement? Where? Where do we find this? Where? What? Huh? What? The covenant. All right. Very good. That's on your next page. There has to be a way to connect all of these things together. And this is where what uh, Brent was talking about earlier, kind of the, our kids wanting something big, wanting something bigger than themselves. And I think what we have to give is better than what some of these other traditional approaches have to give because... What we have to give is the covenant, all right? The covenant. And I would, I, I think what I'm going to, I think what we need to start doing is, not, is thinking more, instead of thinking individually or communally, we need to start thinking covenantally about approaching Jesus in, in terms of the covenant. Okay, so what is... I'm just going to ask what a covenant is. What is a covenant? Go ahead, Brent. What's that? It's a contract. It is a contract, but it's bigger than a contract. It's a promise. It is a promise, but it's something that's bigger than a promise. Because I promise things to my kids all the time, and I don't deliver. Okay? <laughs> I wish I did. 
but I don't. It's a promise, it's a contract, but it's bigger. Brent, you want to say it. Come on. You want to say it. What is that? It is a contract from God. Closer. What's that? Yes. Covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. Okay, do you get the bigness of this? It's a bond in blood sovereignly administered. That's from O. Palmer Robertson. Uh, his, he got a book called Christ of the Covenants. Uh, it's a simple, easy definition that all of us can memorize. A bond in blood sovereignly administered. So a bond, any chemist in here? Anybody that likes chemistry? Right? A bond, something that joins together. Now, in chemistry, you can usually break those bonds. But in a covenant, you can't. Why? Because it's a bond in blood. It's so big that it's in blood, meaning if, if you break the covenant... Yes, Woody, I see your hand. Okay. Uh, if, if you break the covenant, then death is involved. A bond in blood. Sovereignly administered, meaning it comes from God. God is the one that administers the covenant. I'm going to have to stop there because Woody is threatening bodily harm again. This is the way that we approach God and the appropriate way that we approach Him and using appropriately the spiritual, um, the spiritual disciplines that He has given us, a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. The covenant that God has made with us, that is individual and communal. Because in order to have a community, you have to have individuals in that. So God has made a covenant with individuals within a community. And you cannot live your life apart from Christ in growth, in the spiritual disciplines, apart from the covenant community. But it also requires you as an individual to participate in those spiritual disciplines. Is everybody tracking? I got to stop there. I'll, I'll have to finish this. I had asked, I'd, yeah, I'll do part of this next time and then you can still teach on the other things. Okay, let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that we can learn about these things. I pray that you would provoke us uh, more and more to love Jesus, uh, to see Jesus and to behold him. And I pray as we go into worship that we would be under your authority, under your word, that we would be drawn to Christ by the Holy Spirit and that we would grow in him. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.